says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. And Father, we ask as we open the word of God now, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit working through the word of God and in each one of our lives to have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Lord, may every reason by why you inspired this by your spirit originally, may it reach into our heart and speak to us what we need to hear in a personal way from it in our lives today. So speak to us now and bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, knowing the weather forecast tends to help you be a lot more prepared for navigating the storm, whether that's just here uh, walking on solid ground or whether that's out to sea. Knowing the weather forecast makes any person much more prepared than to navigate the storm when it comes. And these verses this morning in my opinion, are sort of like the Holy Spirit giving an accurate weather forecast, a spiritual weather forecast, if you would, of the conditions of mankind in the last days. That's what's being described here. Paul was forewarning Timothy what will characterize the days prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just speaking of what will characterize the unbelieving world or the culture at large that doesn't know Jesus Christ and isn't living for God, the world in general, he's also indicating here what will be prevalent among what is referring to itself as the professing church. Because you notice there in verse 5, that little statement where he refers to those who have a form that is the outward image or appearance of godliness. So he's not just describing this is what the world will be like who hates and rejects and doesn't follow God. He's also saying, unfortunately, that these conditions will be found in the culture of the last day's church, that these same things will show up. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul had already said there that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, even influencing the atmosphere among God's people. Now here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is telling Timothy that there is something, notice, that he must be aware of. Look with me in the text there, verse 1. He says, but know this, it's an imperative, you must know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. The language there indicates, Timothy, this is something that cannot be overlooked. And it is something that absolutely must be anticipated. He's saying here, Timothy, the Holy Spirit wants you to know this. Pay attention. 
You must know this, he's saying. You must be aware and anticipate that as the time draws closer to the return of Jesus, he says, verse 1 there, perilous times will come. This is going to happen. This will come. The word perilous that's used there is a term that speaks of that which is dangerous or difficult. The idea there implies times that are hard to deal with. Difficult times that are hard to deal with will come upon the earth in the last days. The implication is that as time goes on and we become closer to the imminent, really coming return of Jesus Christ, whenever it's going to be, that as the time draws closer and closer, things on earth are not going to get better. They're actually going to get worse. It's going to get harder and darker and harder and darker difficult times times hard to deal with notice as he describes however these perilous times to come in the last days that paul here mentions in this list in verses two to five he doesn't mention anything really about natural events or catastrophic circumstances he mentions nothing here about nations rising against nation or wars and rumors of wars. He mentions nothing about uh, earthquakes or famines or pestilence or persecution against Christians. He doesn't mention anything here about one world economies or a one world religion, a universal religion that everybody's trying to flock into and pervert the ways of God. Now listen, all of those things will come too. And those are things that Jesus spoke about will come to pass. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, famines, catastrophic things, events happening on this earth. But it seems here that Paul, under the leading of the Spirit, zeroes in on something else that the Spirit of God is greatly concerned about for the earth. That the Spirit of God is wanting people to know and be aware that he's grieved over and it's not the unfolding of catastrophic circumstances on the earth in nature what it is he's concerned about is the unrestrained condition of the human nature that is the perilous condition of human beings hearts and when that becomes unrestrained and unregulated the perilous condition of the human heart will bring the darkest days on this planet that it has ever known and listen let's be very honest this morning the reality is the greatest peril that ever has existed in humanity is not some hurricane or an earthquake or or anything else the greatest peril that exists among humanity is the depraved condition of all of our human hearts remember jeremiah said there in jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 that great text that speaks so very refreshingly honest to all of us it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked deceitful above all things and desperately wicked we can't even know our own hearts the potential of evil that lies within every one of us that's what god says is the truth about all of our lives now perhaps paul was thinking here maybe of even what jesus said is one of the signs of the last days Because Jesus said regarding one of the signs of the last days in Matthew 24, he said, because lawlessness will abound in the world, he said, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, Jesus was forecasting that and forewarning the prevalence of evil in the world and lawlessness, the world just becoming lawless and out of control and the prevalence of evil and rebellion 
He's saying somehow that is going to permeate even among the people of God and infect them. Because when he says the love of many, it's the term there, the agape, that, that spiritual love that a person can only experience when they're experiencing it from God. He's saying the agape, the, the, the love of God and the love for God will grow cold in people's hearts because of lawlessness that's abounding in the world. The implication there is the evil of the world will begin to permeate even the church itself, causing a cooling off among believers and bringing about a carnal form of Christianity. Jesus said what will happen in the last days is love for the Lord will begin to diminish. People's love for one another within the church, it will just begin to, to fade and won't be exercised biblically as it should and we'll make justifications for why we don't express proper love towards one another even as God's people. Love for the unsaved world will diminish and, and begin to fade out. We won't have a burden for the lost anymore. Now granted, as Paul goes into this list in verses 2 to 5 here, it indeed does accurately characterize what the conditions of the world will be like. Uh, I don't you know, diminish that at all. In fact, quite honestly, when we read that list, it probably sounded to you much like a description of modern day society. It kind of sounds like the media right now and what you hear on the news in regards to what goes on in our world today. However, rather than just look at that list and be vexed by the rotten conditions of the unsaved world around us, I think it would do us all well, honestly, to look at it from a personal angle and do a little examination of our own hearts. If you can tell me you can read through that list and there's not something there that puts its finger on something in your life, I could tell you you're a liar. <laughs> that much is true. Because that's a pretty extensive list that's given there and those things that are there, I'll tell you this, that list not only describes the world, that list there reveals the capacity of our own human hearts. That reveals the potential inside of every one of us. That list describes who I am, who I can and will be, listen, if I become disconnected from Jesus Christ. Apart from the work of God's spirit and God's word within me, that's what I will become. In fact, you notice he says, this is what men will be. That's the idea. This is what humanity will be. This is what we will naturally be apart from the work of God happening inside of any one of our lives, restraining this. And as the world goes on, our culture is only going to feed this kind of stuff. There's going to be a greater support, a greater endorsement, and a greater feeding of all that you read in that list. So what's naturally inside of you, the world culture is going to say, yes, do it. Be like that. And the world culture is just going to feed that more and more. So we have to be aware and prepared so that we don't get caught in the storm. Well, let's work through this list together. He describes the conditions that characterize humanity in the last days. And you notice the first thing he says he says, in the last days, perilous times are going to come, verse 2, for men will be, number one, lovers of themselves. The first thing he addresses there is an increasing plague among humanity of self-love. The people just, they're in love with themselves. And look, whatever we love, that's what we give the most attention to, right? When you fall in love with somebody, what happens? All of your attention that was on this goes towards who you fall in love with. That's what happens. Love motivates us to give the most care and attention to whatever it is that we love. Because mankind loves themselves, they live self-centered. And they live self-absorbed and occupied with thinking and pursuing 
their own needs and desires and wants. They become consumed with their own preferences, their own interests, and they seek after what they desire. So if I love myself, then I seek what I desire. What benefits me the most? What am I the most interested in? Where can I find the most fulfillment? You know, sometimes we'll even say stuff. I'll hear people say something like, I just don't know why I'm so self-absorbed. I just don't know why I'm so self... Why do I live such a self-absorbed life? Here's a little hint. Because you love yourself. By nature, you love yourself way too much. Please don't listen. We need to teach self-esteem. You have to love yourself. If you learn to love yourself, then you're like... You already know how to love yourself. That's the problem. We love ourselves too much. And that's going to become unregulated, unrestrained. Men will just be lovers of themselves in such a way. And and when you love yourself, you know what self-love is characterized by? Selfishness. And so we see it in our family lives and in the culture and in our jobs. Just the constant selfishness in our attitudes and behaviors. And people sacrifice relationship in the pursuit of their own personal happiness. How many times? People sacrifice. They put their marriage on the altar. They sacrifice their children for the pursuit of their own personal happiness. That's all it is. It's just the pursuit of their own happiness. It's self-love. It's being self-absorbed. And he says, in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. Secondly, he goes on to say, in the last days, men will be lovers of money. Now, that's not putting down hard work or providing responsibly. The Bible teaches that. Rather, this is someone who the most important thing to them is money. Money consumes them. They find great pleasure and fulfillment in obtaining and having more and more money. Always longing for the nicer thing, the, the newer thing, the, you know, the, the higher financial status in life and uh, money to indulge more fun and more pleasure. And money can become an altar that people worship at. Jesus even said that. It, it could be something that drives greed. It just rules a person's decisions in their lifestyle And I'll tell you, so much of what we see driving our society today is people's obsession with money. That's that's what's driving so much of what we see in our world. It's people's obsession and love with money. And even among the church today, even some believers, their lives, if they were to be honest, are measured more by, listen, what benefits them financially rather than what benefits them spiritually and eternally. And what's being described here, men will become lovers of money, is very simply this, that when you have to make a choice, and people sometimes do, when we have to make a choice between the things of God or money, money wins out. That's the implication here. Men become lovers of money. Thirdly, he mentions that men will be boasters, that is, speaking in ways that are exaggerated about their own self-importance. We used to call it bragging, the idea there. Just, you know, somebody who enjoys talking about themselves, their status, their achievements, their, you know, accomplishments. They enjoy impressing people who will listen. Be in the center of conversation, having the attention, you know, just verbally always promoting their abilities. You know, as soon as you start talking to them, they just, without you even asking, they just start submitting a resume to you. You know, that's like, you just, you, you meet them and, hi, just nice to meet you. And then as soon as you meet them, they just start telling you their whole resume. 
just boasters, you know, bragging, always trying to you know, give an impression of importance and speaking about themselves in some way. And most oftentimes, when we're boasting, here's the funny thing, when we're boasting so often, everybody else knows it, but somehow we're not clued into it. We don't even realize that we're doing it so often. Fourthly, he says, another mark will be is that not only men will be boasters, but he says, fourthly there, that men will be proud. And the term there literally speaks of to see yourself as above others. From a position looking down as if somehow you're superior and others are inferior. And look, pride, man, this is the sinful plague and cancer of every human heart. I mean, it, it's really, in many ways, it's been said before, the mother of all sins. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, there, he warned of being puffed up with pride and falling into the same condemnation as the devil. Wow, that's strong. Being puffed up with pride as the result, falling into the same condemnation as the actions of the devil himself. Because pride will always give birth to being self-willed. When you're proud and you let pride operate within you, you'll pursue what you want without any regard for what honors God or any regard for what's in the best interest of others. It's just that arrogant attitude that prompts a person to feel that they are entitled to their own way. And so therefore, if a person's proud, they'll be demanding their rights and they're going to assert their will and we act as if we deserve special exceptions and we are entitled to this and, and that's kind of the attitude that goes along with it. You know, one man has said before, we never act more like the devil himself than we're being proud. I think there's a lot of truth to that. He goes on in his list there to say men will not only be proud, but be blasphemers. That speaks of abusive talk that is speaking cruelly and hurtfully about God or speaking cruelly or hurtfully towards people. And do we not have a culture today that is characterized by just the accepted use of profanity? And just abusive, dishonoring speech and dis... I mean, you can just speak dishonorably and disrespectfully and cruelly about anybody or anything. It doesn't matter. And it's just sort of an accepted thing. He goes on to mention in the list, verse 6, or excuse me, sixthly, disobedient to parents. Interesting that the Holy Spirit puts that in there. This speaks of how there will be a growing rebellion in spirit within young people. A growing rebelliousness where youthfulness will bring about as well a disregard for no longer needing to submit to authority. It simply speaks of just an attitude of rebellion that's in the heart, listen, of a toddler or a child or a teenager where there's just disrespect for proper authority over one's life and the understanding that I am not in control. My parent is in control. That I don't deserve to be in control. I don't even deserve to have, honestly, a right to choose. My parent is in control. And that God's designed this order and this healthy structure whereby the parent would be in control and rule over their child to help them understand the value of submission and authority and respecting authority. Again, this manifests itself, this disobedience to parents, very early within the home and the family life where the child just wants to be in control. And from the earliest days, it just begins to manifest. And the child fights against the, the parent from controlling their behavior. The child just ignores the parent's instruction. And the parent says something, and they just blow it off and keep doing what they want to do anyway. And this begins to manifest itself. And look, I'll tell you, the failure to respect and honor authority 
within the home life and toward the parent, that just plants seeds for just further rebellion as that child continues to grow into an adult. Because what is allowed at home will always flow over into the public life and into adulthood. It will naturally just manifest itself where then that child who continues to grow won't understand what it means to be in submission at school or to government or to the police department or to work or you know in a church. It just it will just naturally spill out. And I'll tell you something from a parental perspective. And listen, I have, my children now are 17, 19, and, and 20, almost 22. Now, I'm not an expert, but I can tell you one thing. That, that if I did not control my children, someone else would. And I don't want somebody else trying to control my children. Because eventually, if you don't control them, and they don't learn to control themselves, and they can't self-regulate, that's what cops and judges and jails are for. Somebody else will control them. You love them a lot more. Much better for you to control them. Much better for you to not allow them to refrain from submitting to the authority that you have. That, that's never a healthy thing. And I tell you, we are living in days, my personal conviction, apologize if I'm stepping on any toes because I'm going to be honest here, we are living in a day where in our generation we are raising progressively more and more young people who have a greater and greater disregard for authority towards their parents and, and it just flows over into the public life. And we're doing nothing but creating a disservice for ourselves. We're, we're creating a generation that's disrespectful and rebellious and out of control. And I'm convinced the devil's just smiling away at it because of the damage that it so often brings. He mentions seventhly in our list here, unthankful. And that speaks, again, people having an absence of appreciation, a, a failure to be grateful, just being discontent. You know, it, it manifests itself in the ability to just not be satisfied, to always have to long for the next thing, not being able to just enjoy and appreciate what we already possess uh, and never expressing appreciation or gratefulness for it, but instead living in a way where instead of being appreciative for what you already have, and just in actually enjoying what you do have, you're always instead hyper fixated on what you feel like you're still entitled to. And well, why don't I have this yet? Or why don't I have that version of the iPhone yet? You know, or I mean, just and this is just just an unthankful attitude, unappreciative of the marriage I do have, or the health that I do have, or the possessions I do have. Just always, you know, kind of angry and feeling entitled. But but I don't have. But that one's nicer. Why don't I have that one yet? Why don't I have what they have? And again, it's just this unthankful attitude that creeps in and begins to characterize a culture. He mentions eighthly in our list here, unholy, that is living without personal holiness, lacking morals, lacking integrity and character. People no longer want to live righteous or pure. Instead, they want to live in practices of sin and just disregard God's word and God's authority over their lives. And again, how sad. Personal godliness seems to no longer in many ways be important, certainly in the world. And sometimes in some ways it's starting to find itself into the church as well, where just personal godliness and holiness is something that's sort of, that's a little radical. I mean, come on. I mean, let's not go overboard with that God stuff. In verse 3, he then goes on to say that in the last days, men will also be, verse 3, unloving. There's an absence of love. It's interesting, the term that's used there too, 
speaks of a lack of natural affection. The term there literally speaks of there's no longer proper healthy family love. A lack of affection, natural affection. That is the appropriate love that should exist between husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings. That natural affection of family love that that no longer is manifesting itself properly. There's a diminishing value of the importance of family and a lack of proper affection. Commitment to family relationships is no longer important anymore. There's just an absence of that. Uh, Family relationships no longer become a priority. And so as the result of that being unloving, lacking natural affection, what do you see? Marriages are struggling. Children are being neglected and ignored. Aging parents are being brushed aside as an inconvenience and all those things for what? Typically, self-love and selfish reasons. Because we want to pursue our own happiness, we no longer have a natural, proper affection and love towards family life. He mentions verse uh, 3 going on, unforgiving. That is, people refuse to release somebody when they've done something hurtful or offensive to them. And again, offenses happen, but a person, they, they don't let it go. They may even say, well, I, I forgive them, but yet they treat them like they have murdered their mother. Why well, forgive them? But yet they still continue to bear a grudge and just in the way they relate to them, they got a chip on their shoulder and they're still bitter. And again, this unforgiving attitude. He mentions 11th in our list here, slanderers. That is people verbally attacking others, using their mouths to just, you know, abuse people and to discredit their character, to cause harm and ruin through slander. Look at the media. Nothing else needs to be said on that. Without self-control, he says there, verse 3. The idea there is having no ability to say no to oneself. He says in the last days, Perilous, difficult times to deal with will exist because men will lack self-control on the earth. People no longer will, will see the value of personal discipline, of actually regulating yourself and exercising some discipline to have rulership and control over your passions or your ideas or your desires or over your own body and soul and spirit. People will not see the value of discipline or self-regulation. They'll just want to live unrestrained. No self-control. No, no need of even seeing the reason or purpose for it. People will begin to forget you know, what the value of self-control even meant and whether it's right or wrong. The idea is it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. If you want it, you got to just do it. If you feel it and you want it, then that's right for you. And this is what's bred in our culture today. This is what's encouraged. You know, the motto of our culture even now in our current generation is you should have the right to satisfy yourself. If you have the desire for it, that means you're entitled to indulge it. That's kind of the basic idea that's conveyed. People live with the basic idea that if you have the desire for something, that gives you the right or the permission to pursue it or indulge it. Can I help you? No, you don't. No, you don't. There are times when I may be hanging out with someone and I start to get really hungry and then I start to get hangry. I don't bite their arm. Well, I'm sorry. I was hungry. I couldn't wait for dinner. I, I have a desire. What do you want me to do? I mean, it's just, uh, just foolishness. It's, I mean, it's without self-control. The point is that we're supposed to have self-control. 
We're supposed to implement that. And again, this is just what begins to breed itself when you let things spiral downward and don't restrain that. He goes on in the list, verse 3, to say men will also be brutal. That is, they're untamed in behavior, treating people in savage and cruel ways where you become violent and dangerous. People will become, he says, in the last days, ruthless, just brutal, just cruel and barbaric and heartless and without feeling in their actions. Can I encourage you? Look at one of the clear marks of our world today. People are becoming barbaric. I mean, just utterly cruel in the way that they relate to fellow humanity. He mentions as well there in our list, the end of verse 3, despisers of good. That is, people will begin to mock and belittle everything that's wholesome and upright. There'll be no more appreciation for what is good, what's wholesome. Good men will be seen as bad men and bad men will be seen as those who are good men and people will even hate and fight against good things. If something's good, that's what everybody's fighting against. That's somehow seen as you know what's going to cause problems on the earth. Verse 4, he goes on to say as well, in the last days men will be, he says, traitors. That is, people will no longer be loyal. They'll no longer see the value of commitment. They're prone to betrayal and abandoning things. People no longer care about being faithful, about being loyal and committed, whether to the Lord or their marriage or their family. He mentions as well, they're headstrong and haughty. Those are interesting terms to sort of put together because the idea they're headstrong and haughty speaks of just being stubborn and reckless. Where you just plow forward and the idea is you're just self-willed, you refuse to cooperate and you don't even consider what other people think or the impact it's going to have on anybody else. You are just going to do what you want to do because you want to do it. So just with a reckless sort of bulldozing attitude, you're not willing to compromise or submit. You're going to do whatever it takes to have your way. And just with a reckless attitude, you've made your decision, you refuse to change, and you're never going to accept you could possibly wrong. And so if people get hurt in their casualties in the process, sorry, they shouldn't have gotten my way. That's kind of the idea there. Just reckless, he says, headstrong, haughty. Verse uh, 4, he also says there, this last part of it, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, that is so picturesque. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. J.B. Phillips translates that section, loving what gives them pleasure instead of loving God. And I'll tell you, that can happen in two different ways. First of all, by sinful indulgences. That people love the pleasure of sin. That whatever sin it may be, you can pick your poison there. People pursue pleasure instead of honoring or obeying God. And listen, the lusts of our flesh, the cravings of our sin nature, they can be strong. I understand that. I'm fighting the same battles you are and failing on occasion as well. And the cravings of our flesh and our sin nature can be really strong. But how sad when we love our own pleasure and fulfillment of some sin more than restraining ourselves and showing love for God and honoring God by not indulging something that we know is sinful, though it may be pleasing to ourselves. But look, it's not just that. I'll tell you another way this directly applies as well. Loving pleasure rather than loving God is just through, I could say, social indulgences, whereby again here, we esteem and pursue what's pleasurable, fun, entertaining, enjoyable, more than we do loving God. 
Well, when a person maybe has to choose and make the choice, do I want to do this pleasurable, fun, entertaining, enjoyable thing, or do I want to worship God, or do I want to serve God or seek God, that people choose many times to love pleasure more than they love God? It, they, they, they enjoy the pleasure of a good TV series more than they do reading their Bible or praying. They enjoy the pleasure of going out and doing all the wonderful things America's candy land offers them more than they do worshiping the Lord or serving the Lord. Our world, ladies and gentlemen, I hate to tell you in our American culture, if you haven't noticed, is addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to pleasure. Life's a party. And you should be having fun and satisfying and fulfilling yourself. And we're addicted to pleasure. And we are raising another generation that's twice as addicted to pleasure. Oh, I'm so yeah. I mean, we just don't have time for this, that, or whatever. And just you know, I mean, because we, you know, I mean, Tuesday we run Johnny this, and then Wednesday we're running Sarah to that. And then, but you know, what you're teaching your children. Listen, I, I raised kids. We did the stuff. We did the, but we always taught our children we worship and seek Jesus first, and whatever else we have time for, that comes second, because we love the Lord more than we do seeking pleasure and going after all the things of this world. We have to be careful. We really, really have to be careful what we're conveying to God and certainly to our own children. Look what he says lastly in verse 5 there. He says, And having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. The idea there is maintaining an outward image or form of a godly or a Christian life. Holding the outward appearance, acting as if we're someone who is committed to God, following the Lord, but yet not really a genuine experience happening with the Lord in our lives. It's just an outward sort of you know, covering that we hold. And people can maintain, listen, people can maintain a spiritual image. People can maintain the image of a spiritual life. You know, you attend church faithfully every week. You maybe even talk about the things of God. You can quote some Bible verses because you know them in your conversations. However, all the while, you can be suppressing the genuine real experience of the Spirit of God from ruling over and regulating your heart. And you can keep the image up for a while. Go to church. Even have your, you know, all your little, you know, kind of whole system and your little spiritual routine going on but yet not be living under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit not genuinely being submitted to the Lord and in a real relationship with the Lord and sometimes people they don't mind keeping an image of being a follower of God but they don't really want God to rule over their life they don't have the image of being a follower of God but they don't really want the power of God's authority ruling over their life internally where they're fully living submitted to the lordship of Jesus as they should. You know, spirituality is just sort of like a fashion they adorn themselves with, but that they're rejecting and refusing what it means to really let the work of the Spirit of God go on in their life. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power from working within your life. Look, seeing the moral storm, we have to do our best not to get swept up in it. That's why he says there in verse 5, from such people back through that list he's thinking from such people turn away or you might also say from such things turn away he's saying steer clear 
of these kind of things and embracing these patterns. Listen, folks, perilous times are going to come upon this earth. Perilous times are coming on this earth. And when the storm intensifies, it is not going to help me and you if we have, let's say, for example, a really fancy ship with all the modern comforts. It's not going to help if we got the best, funnest cruise liner out there. Do you know what's going to help? Do you know what's going to matter? Are you anchored in Jesus? That's what's going to keep you in the storm. Are you anchored in Jesus? Let's pray together.